Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening. Uh, today, I am speaking with Iona Italia. Iona is the sub-editor at Aereo Magazine. She's also the author of two books. She does copy editing. She's also a freelance writer, and she has contributed to Aereo. Hi, Iona. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Byte. Um, so I was just wondering, I was hoping, okay, first I want to talk about your newest book, just because... I will be completely honest here. All I knew about Tango before I read your book was that Robert Duvall did it and, you know, whatever stereotypes you would see on sitcoms and on the Flintstones. And so that was the extent of my knowledge of Tango until I'd read your book. And so I thought maybe you could give people a bit of your background and then we could start talking about your book because you do kind of talk a little bit about your background at the very, very start of your book. So I was hoping we can kind of mix the two together. Um, okay, so um, uh, let me see. Um, I was um, I spent my early years in Karachi, my early childhood, and um, I'm um, from a Parsi background on my father's side. Being par- being a Parsi is patrilineal, so I am a Parsi, and I had my initiation to the Zoroastrian religion, my Naujat in Karachi in. 1977 and um, then uh, I moved to the UK my parents died I grew up with various family members on my mother's side and partly in state-appointed foster care also and then I went to Cambridge University I studied English literature and I did a PhD in English and I was an academic for about 10 years I, my speciality subject was 18th century literature, and I have published a book on 18th century essays, which is called Anxious Employment with Routledge. And then in 2006, I and my then husband came here to Buenos Aires. I took a, a year's unpaid leave. We both took unpaid leave from our, our jobs in order to... Um, study tango. I already danced tango at that stage, but I wanted to study more intensively, so we came for a year to study. And I fell in love with tango so much that um, we both, well, I quit my job, and and um, I won't go into his story, but I, um, I left my job, decided to stay in Buenos Aires. I taught tango for a number of years here, and um, that's it. I don't think I have anything else to say. Okay, no, that's good. Okay, especially like the, the bit about the tango. So you mentioned you tango before, but just um, just like from, you know, like, I mean, I got to know, we got to know each other over Twitter. And so some of the things I've seen you, like, I mean, I've seen that you tweeted out, you know, about ballet and stuff as well. So were you always dancing growing up or... Like, was that something later that you, you started doing later? Or? Uh, well, I didn't have any opportunities to do any dance lessons of any kind growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I began dancing when I was an undergraduate. And I have done a variety of different dance forms. And then I discovered tango. Um, yeah, it's not a very interesting story, I'm afraid. I don't have... I don't have an interesting origin story for my tango. Oh. Um, 
No, it's, it's just curiosity, like I said, because I, you know, I, you had mentioned the ballet. Okay, so speaking of the tango, as I said, you know, I, I knew practically nothing about the tango except for the little I'd mentioned, right? Uh, but and I, and I don't want to try to make this sound like you you did a uh, Jordan Peterson esque uh, you know guide for lobsters or anything, but I because I, I mean you broke the book down into two sections like the technical side of it and the community aspect of it and we are promised a second volume um but the second volume is coming out in january okay cool Our publishers the small independent publishers who mm-hmm. i published with um i signed a contract with them for both volumes so mm-hmm. the second volume will come out um shortly yeah. but like especially like the the technical side of it i i i I think I enjoyed the community side of the book a little more than the technical, just because I'm not a dancer. But the technical part of it, there's, there, I mean, there's, there's some to, some universality to it, and it's because you kept you know stressing the practice and the discipline, and that goes for just about anything. Like you know, you you can't be a good writer unless you write all the time. You know, if you you know, I work in IT and unless I keep myself busy and keep up to speed with what's going on, I'm not going to be good at what I do, right? So if you want to be good at anything and if you want to succeed at anything, it requires discipline. So, you know, I, I like, especially like I said at the very start when you were talking more about the practice and you're talking about the discipline, like I, I could really appreciate that, but I liked how you went through the, the technical aspects of it to try to give an understanding like to someone like me who has no comprehension of, you know, or knew anything about tango to begin with. Um, When you say technical, I think that's maybe a little bit misleading because it's not an instructional book on how to dance. Okay, sorry, yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, and I shouldn't have said that. It's it's just, you were talking more about the techniques and... Well, not techniques so much as um, the psychology of learning and how to work well with another person, how to get the most out of a lesson, how to get the most out of teaching, how to teach most effectively. But there's no, you can't learn to dance tango from reading this book. Um, I ha- I really say almost nothing about the technical aspects of it um, within the book. It's, re- it's about culture and psychology yeah. and... I'm, yeah, sorry, go so, ahead. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to, uh, I, I should not have employed that. Maybe I, I, I just, I, I, that's not what I was trying to get at, that you were teaching people, you know, it was like a, a step-by-step, you know, because like, like that's why I was trying to get at with the, when you're talking about the practice and the discipline and having to, you know, work at it all the time, like, the, like that's what I got more out of that side of the book as opposed to the community building side of the book. Um, And like I, like I said, that's something that's kind of universal, you if you don't practice, if you don't have discipline, you know, there's different ways to learn different things. And like, you know, you had, you talked about the different styles of dancing that people could use and, you know, trying to find one that fits for you or working. And I'm just saying like, some of those things are kind of universal that you can use for other things. Yes, I think so. Um, anyway, so what, what made you like, okay, there's another thing, like I, I maybe I'm reading too much into it. It was almost like you were writing a love letter to the dance and to the people who did it. 
I don't know if I'm reading too much into that or if I'm romanticizing it too much. Well, I think, I mean, I can't see how you can be passionate about a topic without, without, and if, um, without valuing that, without, you know, how you can be passionate about any activity without valuing that activity. And I think that there is um, the a kind of opposite of diminishing returns, which is that if you I I am I have the opposite of a kind of ADHD. I would say it's the anti-ADHD. So people who have an attention deficit disorder or who have a very um, short attention span want a lot of variety. And there are people who enjoy finding out a little bit about a wide, a, a large number of topics, um, who want to be informed um in a in a sort of overall in a broader manner and um i really don't have that tendency at all my experience is actually that the deeper you go into a topic any topic the uh, almost any topic the more uh, the more intricately and the more carefully you examine that topic and the more you think about it the richer it is so the in fact that the deeper you go in your examination of anything the more rewarding it becomes oh no i i totally see that i mean and that's you know obviously like you said it, it has to be something you you're passionate about and you know the average person who maybe goes to a a job that they don't really find meaningful or something. You know, I don't think they'll ever find that until they find something that they're truly passionate about. Um, it's, it's you know, the important thing is um, finding meaning in something outside yourself, something which has, has beauty or significance for its own sake. So you're engaging with a discipline or a tradition or body of knowledge, or whatever it might be, um, completely for its own sake, for the sake of it, the fascination, the richness that that subject itself provides, not for any kind of monetary benefit or status that it could bring to you yourself. And it's not; it's beyond the purely personal. So, in that sense. Um, Every book that examines a topic in depth could be said to be a love letter, right? To that to that topic. I guess, but I mean, you know, you could read a a book on history, and I mean, I I do love history, and you know, there are some well written books like I reading something by Tom Holland, I enjoy very much. Or you could read something that's the person might know it inside out, but it's just. You know, you can almost hear a monotone droning voice in the background and <laughs> you don't sense any like passion or anything in there. It's just like, here's some facts type of thing, you know. Mm, some people are not very good at conveying passion. Yeah. And if you try to convey it, it that is counterproductive. Um, I have to say, when I first started writing and I began the book, um, the book was born out of a blog. 
And the blog is a little bit more um, poetic than the book. So I wrote also a lot of short fictional sketches, which are not within the book, at least not in this first volume. There'll be more in the second volume. And um, I like to, um, uh, what I'm doing when I'm describing the and ex the experience of dancing is, it is, um, Wordsworth described writing poetry as being emotion recollected in tranquility. So what I'm doing is reconstructing in my memory what the feeling was and trying to express that feeling with precision by using metaphor, etc. And I had a lot of people telling me, first of all, saying there's no way that you can write about or describe an experience of dancing. Um, there's no point in attempting to describe this in words. There's no kind of, um, it's just as silly to write about dance as it is to paint about architectures. One thing that people would often say to me. But I, I think that, in fact, I think that we can we can draw comparisons, and we do draw comparisons all the time, even in normal speech, between different types of experience. So we can say, well, to help you understand this experience you haven't had, I'm going to compare it to an experience you have had, and I'm going to try to show you where the points of contact are, where the similarity is. So I've had a lot of people telling me that there's no point in attempting to describe things which are not themselves verbal phenomena. Um, I think that is that's sort of a non-starter for me. Um, uh, uh, just excuse me, but I, I'm still having like I don't understand how someone can say that. I mean, you it's know. a very very common critique that that I hear that there is no point in writing about something that is not itself a verbal phenomenon. That's not itself ideas that were originally expressed in language. I mean, people have written about paintings, and people have written about all kinds of nonverbal things. Yeah, I, 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 I'm sorry. It, it, it just that just boggles the mind. It's a common, but to me, rather, um, uh, rather odd attitude. Um, I think there are people who just prefer things not to be put into words, um, and that's fine. Um, but I feel that especially with an experience that is a fleeting experience like dance, being able to capture that experience in words enriches it. And um, the experience of describing something is its own pleasure. Um, finding, the ex finding the right comparisons and metaphors and phrases to express that is its own sort of pleasure and satisfaction. That's one thing. The other thing is that at the beginning, when I first started writing, I think less so a few years into when I was writing regularly and blogging about this, um, is that people told me, you are making a mountain out of a molehill. Nobody really enjoys dancing that much. Um, you know, you make it sound like this extraordinarily blissful experience. And meh. It's quite nice, but it's no big deal. <laughs> um, and I, I also find it very hard to, I find it really hard to understand that attitude too. I think some people do just um, have only a very small subset of experiences which they 
find rich and meaningful, whereas I think you can find almost any experience rich and meaningful. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, anyway, okay, I, I will agree. I will agree with you there, but okay. I mean, I'm I'm someone I have no sense of rhythm. Um, you know, it's not that I have two left feet. It's like I have two club feet, club feet, you know, like I, I just awful when it comes to dancing. So it's not something I've ever taken up. Just I've tried. And it's just, like I said, it's, it's just, it's a horrible, horrible spectacle. But when you're talking about, you can find meaning anywhere. It, it was, it's not quite the same thing, but when I was, I worked in Afghanistan and, you know, some, you'd, some of the people would look out and it's, even the mountains around Kabul, they're desolate. And they'd say, well, it's so harsh. But I'm like, look at it. And, you know, in the spring, when the snow starts to melt and there's you know, water up on the mountains, they turn green and you'll see some colors from some flowers. I said, Joe, it looks really nice. I mean, we're in the middle of a horrific thing. It's, it's, it's stark and it's harsh, but there is some beauty to it. And it's, it's what we're talking about, the experiences. I mean, you can find... Like you said, a, a meaningful experience, or you can find a, a transcendental experience, and you know, just about anywhere, and especially if it's something that you enjoy, or if it's something that brings you some sort of pleasure, right? Mm. Yeah, I I agree. Um, talking about the not being able to dance thing, mm. I think this is interesting because. Well, I do think there are some people who genuinely are not going to be able to dance. So um, tango is very, I should preface this by saying that tango is very frequently used as a therapy. So I'm, I know it's used for Alzheimer's, for Parkinson's disease. It's very common to do use tango therapy now for Parkinson's. And there have been a lot of studies, a number of studies on this. Um, so it is possible, of course, to dance with certain physical disabilities, and it depends on the style of dance. Um, but I, you know, I think that there are there are probably some physical and mental disabilities that create specific challenges within the dance, and may mean that you're never able to dance at a high professional level. But nevertheless, the idea that people for most people, when they say they can't dance, what they mean is they've never attempted to learn. And I'm always reminded of an anecdote about Freddie Mercury, who is one of my heroes, that uh, um, Freddie went to take a driving lesson and he took one lesson and he came back from the lesson and he told his mother, his mother reports this story, and he said, Mom, I can't drive. You know, I tried it <laughs> in this lesson, this one-hour lesson today. I'm not a, you know, the lesson that came to the end, this isn't how he expressed it. He put it in a much more sardonic <laughs> way. But um, I came to the end of the lesson. I'm still not able to do it. Clearly, I'm not cut out for driving. <laughs> That's it. Um, and, it, you know, most people don't have that attitude to driving. <laughs> they realize that to learn to drive, you have to take some lessons. And then most people find that after whatever number of lessons it is, they are able to learn. And it's only quite small minority of people who really try to learn to drive and are just not able to do it. Um, and there are a few people also who have mental or physical disabilities that, that make it impossible for them or dangerous for them to drive. 
And I think that dance is, is very similar. There are certain dances which are dancers' dances, like ballet, which you can you can obviously take up as an adult, and I did take it up as an adult, but um, I will never dance ballet professionally. That would be impossible because the kinds of physical challenges that ballet presents you can only overcome with the aid of a good genetics you can't get past that and b intensive training from an early age but most popular dances and tango is a popular dance it's a, a an urban folk dance for buenos aires are not like that they are designed to for everybody to be able to dance them. But you can't, it's not instantly intuitive, you can't get up and immediately be able to dance. You have to learn, and just like learning to drive, it's a process. So when people say they can't dance, what that usually means is they haven't attempted to learn. And they feel that, unlike driving, they feel it's something they should just naturally be born being able to do or unable to do. But that's not quite how dance works. Yeah, okay. I mean, granted, I will, I'll give you all that. I mean, if I, if I really wanted to learn and I took you know, classes, that'd be a different thing. I was talking more of just, you know, out with friends at a club and gyrating on the dance floor. Like, you know, like I said, I have absolutely no rhythm or no sense of no sense of rhythm or whatsoever. So um, I'm not saying I would be, you know, uh, a great dancer, but I'm sure if I stuck to it and took lessons and, you know, as you'd mentioned again, you know, the practice and the, you know, you have to discipline yourself to do it. I'm sure I would be passable. I'm not saying that it's, it's you know, it's an unsurmountable challenge, but I, you know, life short. Realize you should put video in the show notes to show your your dancing. <laughs> oh. so let listeners judge for themselves how, whether or not you're a hopeless case. And if you are, at least you will spread some joy and amusement in the world. Yeah, <laughs> I, I embarrass myself on a regular basis. I don't think I need to do uh, much more of that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wanted to, I, I just wanted to switch up a little bit to talk about some of the stuff you do at Aereo. Yes, of course, go ahead. Um, because, I mean, I've been following it. I don't think I started reading it until about, um, I think it was right around the time, you know, Helen started editing it and then you started working with her on it. Um, it's just, I, 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 I'd been away for a while. Like I only got back to North America at the start of 2014. And that's when I started really getting into social media and stuff and started following things. So, you know, around the time, like it's around that time I started reading Aereo and then there was Conardus as well that had come out. And then uh, I think Colette came out a little bit after. Um, and, you know, I quite enjoyed it. And I, you know, I like the fact that you guys have differing opinions and it's not just, you know, one worldview coming from this one place. Um Like I know it had started before. So what made you and Helen, uh, or I guess, I don't know if Helen was leading that or how that worked out. Like what made you guys kind of take it up after I think they were going to fold it or something, or they were, they wanted to stop working on it. The original people who started it, if I get this correct. Um, so it was founded by um, Malhar Mali and 
um, he so he was running the magazine single-handedly until I think about I think it was May of last year May of 2018 um, when Helen took over the editorship Um, and Malhar is only 25 and he um, and he has a you know he has his own career plans Mm -hmm. and Ari of course is not well so far it has not been a um, it's it's it doesn't it so far does not provide really a financial um, support for people much how should I put this it's not a it's not a career Um, and so he decided that he didn't want to invest so he could was not able to invest that kind of time in the enterprise but he built he was the one who built it up and began it so um, Helen took over from um, Malhar and then she hired me to do the be the sub editor and do the copy editing Etc. And then I also host the associated podcast, which is called Two for Tea. Well, yeah. oh, okay, sorry. I thought the, the, so. Then I must have started reading it before um, you and Helen started working there, because I thought that was in 2017 or uh, a little bit earlier. I you know, just have my time I'm, timelines wrong. I'm, I'm not sure when um, Malhar founded the magazine. I'm just taking a look to see when my first contribution was. So, um, I first started writing for Ario. I had never done any political writing before. Um, And then about, um, I joined Twitter for quite unrelated reasons. Yes, so I, I had, I think I originally founded my Twitter account um, a few years ago, but I had never used it. Well, I used it a few times. I tweeted out some things. Nobody followed. I had zero followers and no one responded. So I thought, what is the point of this? It's, you know, <laughs> shite the void. Um, I didn't understand how to use the, the, um, the platform at all. So I just uh, stopped using it for years. And then I had a friend who was working in offshore drilling and um, I wanted to be able to chat to him and we couldn't chat on Facebook because um, Facebook didn't work very well and offshore um, on the kind of narrow Wi-Fi or you know not very good Wi-Fi reception they have there. So I, I actually resuscitated my Twitter account so that I could chat to him and we were talking about Parsi related things and I I was here in Buenos Aires he was in India um, so I would chat to him whilst he, he would chat to me whilst he was having breakfast which was right before I went to bed um, and since I was chatting to him anyway in the DMs I started posting some things on Twitter and for some reason Malhar spotted some of my tweets and he began following me or I think I began following him and then he followed me back and he liked the things that I had to say. So he asked me if I would, uh, he commissioned me to review a documentary film for him, which was um, a film called The Red Pill by Cassie J. It's a documentary about the men's rights movements. So that was the first ever, I think, political writing that I had done. And that was in June 26th of 2000 and 17 they published that 
Um, and I wrote several other pieces for Ariu under Malhar's editorship, and then Helen took over about a year later. Okay. So it was around May or June of last year that mm. Helen took over the editorship and, and hired me as the sub-editor. Okay, the, tw the Twitter thing, if you want to maybe... Because Twitter is a very, very odd thing. Um, I was the same. I joined Twitter when it was first starting and it was supposed to be, you know, I went and saw this movie. It was great. I ate at this restaurant. It was awesome. And then celebrities started using it to let people know where they were, especially the paparazzi and stuff. And then it devolved into the sort of cesspool it is now. Um, and so I never, I never really, really used it. I was the same thing. I had, you know, 10 people that followed me and I was following 30 or 40 people. And there, there were people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Sam Harris and stuff like that. And it was only, I, I went on a friend's podcast and it was just when it came out, I said, okay, fine, whatever, I'll tweet it out. And, and that, that's it. And then, then, I mean, I, I started tweeting more and, um, I mean, most of what I do is just snark i think and it's only usually with people i know like yo i i've left you a couple of snarky comments <laughs> um you know it's it, it's not like snark as in okay well getting back at you or whatever it's just you know like uh, uh i i don't know these people who can do these long threads on twitter i i, I don't understand how people can do that mm. uh oh i write a lot of long threads on twitter mm. i feel that um uh, what I most dislike about Twitter is the precarity of it, precariousness. So there are, on Twitter, um, the administration of the platform can ban, ban users at any time, and there, is no, um, there are no clear rules as to what will get you banned, and there's no appeals process. Um, so very recently, I think, Kathy Young, somebody... Um, swore at Kathy Young and said she was an ugly hook-nosed kike or something and one of Kathy's own friends responded to this basically um, with some snarky comment about what a loser this person was and that friend was permanently banned from Twitter yeah I know uh, I'd been speaking to someone about this and I and I at that point I had said um, sorry I didn't mean to take this tangent off the, onto Twitter but I, I'd, I'd said that you know Twitter should do one of two things. Like I, I, not just Twitter, but all of social media, they should act more as librarians than what they're doing now, than, than as landlords. Um, you know, they should, uh, just be the curators of the knowledge instead of, you know, like landlords who can evict you at any time. And I said, if they are going to be landlords and the, the terms of the lease have to be crystal clear and they have to be applied equally across the board because you know there's no way that there should be isis accounts that are still allowed that are calling for the death of everyone who is you know everyone except for whoever is that specific type of muslim that isis wants you know those kind of accounts should not be allowed as far as i'm concerned i mean I know you are pretty much an absolutist of free speech and i'm in that vein but i don't think calling for violence lands in that but yeah, the social I, media. Yeah, I but, am an absolutist, and I'm fine with the ISIS accounts, with neo-Nazi accounts, with whatever type of accounts. I think that um, probably doxing should be um, 
uh, people should be taken off the platform for doxing, i.e. for publishing people's names and addresses, because that is a credible threat, um, unless, their names and, unless their addresses obviously are published somewhere else publicly, unless they've made those known, but otherwise it is a credible threat. If, for example, I tweeted out the address of the Quilliam offices, that I feel is, a, is an offence for which one should be banned from the platform. Um, but I, um, and I would say the same thing about tweeting at people's employers or publishing their, um, the address of their place of work and their office and their office hours, etc. I've seen people do things like that. And also I would say that, um, child pornography and pedophile activity should probably also get you banned from the platform. Um. And a third thing, which is, if you are the leader of a country in which you have banned your citizens from using Twitter, <laughs> yeah. then yourself should probably not be permitted to have a Twitter account. Um, but yeah. uh, with, with those exceptions, I would say I would allow every other kind of speech, including um, some of the very offensive things that I agree are genuinely offensive and bad. Um, because there is no, just no way for an algorithm to tell the difference. Yeah, I know. I mean, okay, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to ban people for calling, you know, let's say someone calls me, um, a raghead or a packy or something, right? I don't want them banned for that. But if someone is enticing, inciting people, like, like I said, let's say it's an ISIS account and I'm an ex-Muslim and they're saying, okay, everyone go kill this apostate. That is a incitement to violence and that should be banned. I think if we could be clear about that, maybe, but I just think um, we're talking about AI here. Yeah, I know. In the filtering, we're not talking about people who are able to read and tell from the context. Um, you know, this is why Inas was banned for saying people should be killed for making chocolate chip hummus. Um, <laughs> any human being reading that can tell that that is a joke. Um, yeah. You know, but Obviously, the AI cannot tell that the word kill was in there, and so she was banned. Um, and I think that since AI cannot tell the difference, these types of algorithms or what bots or whatever it is they're using cannot tell the difference between irony and seriousness, um, have no sense of context, will ban somebody for responding to an, a threat or offensive thing that was said to them and not the person who made the threat or offensive thing because they can't even tell the difference between those two interlocutors in the conversation. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, um, that I think is, because that is the situation, I feel that we should not be banning anybody. And I would rather ISIS accounts are up there and I know that my own account will not get suddenly banned tomorrow for no, for reasons which will remain a complete mystery to me. Um, and yeah. I do think all of my liberal friends disagree with me on this. They all say to me, well, Twitter is a private company. They can do whatever they want. They should be allowed to do whatever they please. And I'm very disappointed in this um, I'm very disappointed in this attitude and approach because I think that uh, Twitter is much more than some uh, private, has become much more than some private company. It is the 
only viable platform for certain types of speech. The only viable platform. Obviously, you can go and join Elephant or whatever those other platforms are called. Where the, um, but if you're only speaking to three other people, and this is why Google Plus failed, it's the point is not that there is somewhere that you can put out your your words. The the platform only functions if you have a minimum number of people using it. Yeah, I'm no, not bothered to to the kind of 300 people on Elephant. Um, you know what? Why would I do that? I want to be in a public platform, and it's become one of the main places where writers and journalists and independent publications are able to promote themselves, uh, get a readership, etc. And there really is no viable alternative. No, I agree with all that. And I mean, again, with the violence thing, I, I know where you're, what you're trying to say. I, I agree with you. Like, okay, I understand private business and you should have the right to run your business without government interference. Yes. But Twitter has become... Um, our town square, right? Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are saying, oh, we should limit how we do things on social media. And I always go back to uh, the Milton work, Areopagitica, and I said, you know, this argument's been had. It was had with the printing press, and I, the internet is, you know, putting information out there f at a far greater speed and you know, quantity than the printing press ever did. But let the arguments that Milton made in Areopagitica, I think, stand for social media and the necessity for free speech and with the violence thing you know there there maybe it's okay if someone made a threat towards me it's up to me to report it and then that gets taken a look at um by someone not by an algorithm it's not an algorithm just saying okay if someone uses the word kill uh you know remove them because a comedian can say you know i killed it last night right meaning that he did a really good job yeah. and an algorithm could ban you. It's not a person, it's an algorithm. And there's also no, um, you're generally not told why and there's no appeals process. Um, you know, there's there's no appeals process. There's no way of getting in touch with the people behind the scenes at Twitter. There's no actual Twitter support. You know, when I'm using, for example, um, a company like uh, PayPal, for example, if I'm if there's some issue with my PayPal account, there is a chat function that you can go to and you can talk to the PayPal representatives and you will have an actual person on the other end of the chat line to whom you can explain your, your issue. Um, and PayPal will sometimes also suspend accounts because um, they don't understand why you've received a certain payment, etc., and you need to explain or make sure that payments have been filed under the correct category, etc. You need to um, fulfill certain fi international finance laws. But when your account is suspended on PayPal, you can, you can go to the help center and talk to a person, but you cannot do that on Twitter. There's no help center for Twitter. There's no support for Twitter. And there really ought to be. It is a billion-dollar company. Um, you're telling me they can't afford to have a help center for people whose accounts have been suspended or or um, banned? Yeah. Again, I've I've never really looked into that end of things. Um, I was just thinking, like you know, from the outside, like how to curate it. Uh, but 
I, yo, I, I think I, I sorry, I didn't mean to di- devolve into this thing on Twitter because I don't, I don't, I don't know how we got onto it. But yeah, if we want to get back to Ario and what you were doing there, um, and because I mean, I, I do like that magazine quite a bit. It's one of the few that I'm reading regularly online. Um, yo, it's that Colette. Um, I think are the two that I read the most regularly online. That I just, I kind of just find stuff here and there. Um, you know, and I said I do appreciate the fact that you guys will bring in. You know, you you're not just one, one view of things, right? You'll have opinions from all sides coming in. Well, I think what people don't, I, I think people don't really understand how a nonpartisan magazine works, um, and of, clearly you do. <laughs> but um, I. What I really like about ARIO is that we are attempting to give a space, a nonpartisan space for, um, for calm, rational voices for, that are both that can be uh, both left leaning, can be left leaning, right leaning, libertarian, socialist, um, from various parts of the political spectrum. And as long as they are committed to a universal liberal humanist ethos. And by that, I mean that we wouldn't, for example, accept an article which was um, overtly and blatantly racist. That's not, that's not, uh, that would go against our universal liberal humanist principles. And we also wouldn't accept an article that said, for example, um, we need to ban homosexuality because it's a sin, and I know this because it says so in the Bible. That's also not that's not a rational take. Um, it could be a defensible take. I mean, I think it's personally indefensible, but it, it's it's a reasonable opinion to have and express. As far as my free speech principles go, I have no problem with somebody saying that, but I it's not an argument that would be suited to our magazine, for example. So there are it's not that we would publish any opinion. There are certain opinions which don't fall within a universal liberal humanist framework. But within that you could have both social justice leftist approaches. And we have published a few of those, uh, not so many. We have published a few of those. You can have more right-leaning approaches. You can have conservative approaches. You can have socialist approaches. Um, There are a range of different ways of um, looking at the world and different flavors of politics and of different political and social beliefs which still fall within this general umbrella of a respect for human rights and um, a liberal approach and by that we mean an approach that basically respects free speech, diversity of opinion, diversity of people that doesn't see one particular race, skin color, sex, sexuality as inherently and inarguably superior, etc. So I think that um, I think a lot of people just simply cannot understand that the magazine is not my mine and Helen's soapbox. And I have a lot of people often 
um, for example, when we've published an article, and it may be an article that I don't agree with. So I have disagreed with a lot of articles we have published, but almost all the articles we've published, there are a few that we've published because Helen liked them, and I personally would not have published them because, you know, we, Helen and I are slightly different people. So there are a few articles that are kind of borderline, which I personally would, would not have published, and vice versa, there are some that I probably would have published that Helen rejected. Um, but in most cases, in 98, 99% of cases, I will stand by our having published the article. I feel it was readable, worth reading. Um, it was a point of view that was worthy of being heard. But that is not the same as it being my point of view, my personal opinion, or the opinion that I agree with. <laughs> um, and people just seem to many people just seem to find it impossible to unpick those differentiate those two things so the articles that i do agree with from ario i retweet on my own timeline on twitter and i share them there so if you want to know which articles i personally particularly agree with it's very easy go to my timeline and if you want to know which ones helen agrees with go to her timeline but i i'm constantly confronted with people saying you published this. How can you defend this statement? And why do you think X? And why did you say Y? But I didn't say it. The author of the article said it. And if you want to have a debate about it, all of our articles have comments, the comment section enabled. Go to the comment section and publish your comment there or tweet at the, if the author is on Twitter, tweet at the author, him or herself. Um, Just a so couple Sorry, yeah. just a couple of things, because uh, there was a couple of things that I oh, I wanted to... There's something you brought up, and I'm hoping maybe you can try to, like, beat this to the ground, because it's it's something that annoys the hell out of me. How can you be a free speech absolutist and say, well, you know, it, it's something I, I've seen come at you, and you say, how can you be a free speech absolutist and then want to not publish something, right? So you're, you're denying them their free speech. Like, Ario... You know, you guys put out a, a statement. This is what we're looking for. This is what we want. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you an absurd example, but let's just say Aria was a magazine dedicated to dance. Someone wouldn't logically or reasonably expect you to publish a story about um, you know, crochet, right? It's, it's, And so you guys have laid out, like you said, you know, you've laid out, we're looking for these type of stories and, or these type of you know, articles or opinion pieces, and and within that you'll you'll you know as long as it's well written and it's within that framework, you'll take any opinion from any any side. But you know, just because you're not publishing something, it's not you're not denying free speech. I think that there's a real misunderstanding that about free speech and um, attention. So um, the um, Freedom of expression, um, as it's more, as it, as we should more accurately call it, because free speech isn't liter doesn't literally mean that every single word that comes out of your mouth is allowable. So, for example, if I'm, if I have you up against the wall and I have my firing squad there and I say aim fire, that is not free speech. It's not expression of opinion. Um, but uh, freedom of expression. Um, 
does not equal a right to force your other people to give you their time and attention. So what freedom of speech should entail for me is your freedom to say whatever you want, to express the opinion you want. Um, when I say say or speak, I'm talking about expressing opinions um, or creating art, which is another way of expressing an opinion in a sense. Um, you should be free to say whatever you want, write whatever you want, read whatever you want, and listen to whatever you want. And nobody should be able to obstruct you uh, in doing any of those four things, with a few possible exceptions, some of which we talked about earlier. Um, if it's if it's really pure expression of opinion, then no one should be able to obstruct you in any of those four activities. And that includes obstructing you by using their voice, <laughs> you know, by, for example, uh, if you've gone to hear a speaker shouting down that speak speaker or using noise makers or setting off the fire alarm, etc., to, to make it impossible for you to listen to the person who you choose to listen to. Um, so all of those things are protected under free speech. What is not what you cannot do under free speech is force someone else to listen to you who doesn't want to, force someone else to publish you who doesn't wish to, force someone to read your book who doesn't want to. Um, so while I feel that um, um, while I disagree with censorship, so for example, if Ario published something controversial. Um, Helen and I at one point were going to publish an article with a very controversial title and I said to her, I don't know that we should publish it under this title because there will be such a huge backlash. And she said, I don't care if there's a backlash or not because, you know, it's our, um, I, I don't want us to be cowed by people's irrational responses. If we feel something is worthy of publication, we should be able to publish it without allowing ourselves to be gagged by fear of other people's responses. Um, are you still there? Oh, yeah, I'm still here. Oh, okay. I, I'm, no, I'm agreeing with just. I'm Sorry. agreeing with everything you're saying. So I, 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 <laughs> um, I, I'm happy to let you go. <laughs> okay. Um, so on the one hand, we shouldn't. Um, uh, there shouldn't be censorship, but you also do not have the right to anybody else's time and attention. And, you know, my time is valuable. You do not have the right to make me copy edit your article. Um, I, I'm a professional copy editor. I'm paid for my work at ARIO. And I also, if you want me to, if you want to make sure I copy edit your article and we don't accept it at ARIO, then please email me and send me your article and I will be happy to copy edit it for you to the absolute best of my ability for a fee. Um, but you don't have the right to demand I edit your article. You don't have the right to demand space in our magazine. Um, I know it's a digital magazine, so in theory we could publish an infinite number of bytes of information, but um, in actuality, First of all, 
I I don't have the time to copy edit that amount of of material. And secondly, if Ario published 500 articles a day, um, each single article would receive very little attention. It would be extremely counterproductive. There's a law of diminishing returns there. So in a very real sense, our time is limited, space in our magazine is limited, and it is not, there is, there is no, in, no one is entitled to space there. And I think that there is a misunderstanding that a lot of people have. They believe that as the editor of um, an online magazine, you are inundated with amazing pieces of writing. And so you can pick and choose those which exactly fit your personal philosophy. So you are, in a sense, censoring other views. But in fact, um, not that many people can write well. So if you have an article that is well-written and well-argued, then it's very unlikely that you're not going to publish that article because it doesn't fit your exact worldview. Um, if we have a well-written article that people are going to enjoy reading and that is either already very well expressed or um, with some work on my part can be can be turned into something that's very well expressed because sometimes we do have writers who have really interesting ideas or valuable things to say but are not very good essayists and I um, kind of whip their essays into shape a little bit. Um, if you're, if what you have to say is well expressed and is going to be entertaining to read, then probably we will publish it. Uh, but you yourself may not be the best judge of whether it meets that hurdle. Yeah, obviously. No, but I mean, like, that's that's what I was trying to get at because, <laughs> like I said, I've, I have seen that. I've seen, this should I, be obvious. I know yeah. this should be obvious, but it seems that to many people it's not. Yeah. So you know, the only reason I brought it up because I have seen those criticisms towards both you and Helen, saying, "Well, you guys say you're for free speech, but you wouldn't publish this," and it's just like, you know, you're not obliged to publish everything people give you because you have set out specifics of what you what the aim of Ario is, and if it doesn't fit that aim, you have no reason to publish it, and it's. Like the people who, sorry, I, I'm, I'm gonna, just because free speech is such an important thing to me. Um, yeah. I, I've, you know, I've worked in war zones. I've, you know, seen. I've been to places where it's denied. I've, you know, and it just, I, I can't believe people want to give it away. And that, you know, it's usually the people who are who demand that people be censored and people be shut down that freak out when they're being shut down and no one's defending them you know and right it, and, exactly. and, and you know the people who want to shut people down are the ones who demand the loudest to be you know you have to give me a, a stage and it's and then that's when they bring up free speech it's i almost uh, i mean i I'm, i've been out of school so long now i've you know i have no association with the academy whatsoever but I, it's I almost feel like they, you know, you have these enforced diversity training and gender courses, whatever that people have to take, at, you know, at the start of university. I almost feel like they should take a, a course on the Enlightenment. Like, okay, you have to take this course, learn what the Enlightenment values were, learn what helped build, you know, 
the best civilizations we've you know we've had like the most advances we've had um there's a loss somewhere there there, there's there's a disconnect somewhere that's going on i just i don't get absolutely i agree i mean i think there are the two sides to this one is um don't shut down anybody else from expressing their opinion in speech or writing or anybody from being able to read or listen the thing that they to the thing that they have chosen to read or listen to um but also I, there are so many demands on our attention, and we, m- many of us, uh, me in particular, um, we need to be more to un- to know the value of, to know the value of our time, um, to be more conscious about what is and isn't a good use of our time, and we only have one go round on this planet. Um, the clock is is. T- ticking away and this is your life and there are an awful lot of very entitled um, attention uh, vampires on Twitter lots of people who are like I love that term by the way sorry the attention vampires I love that yeah who are just like how dare you mute me how dare you block me how dare you not engage me in a 40 tweet conversation I'm like what right do you have to 20 minutes of my pre- one single precious life? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's just it. I mean, if this is time that I would wish back on my deathbed, I don't want to spend it on Twitter. Um, no, exactly. I am trying really hard to spend less time on Twitter. And I've, I've recently been reading... Um, I've been reading several books about this. Um, Cal um, Cal Newport. I don't know if you are familiar with him. Um, he's written two books. One is called um, Deep Work, and the other one is called um, Digital Minimalism. And I'm currently reading Johan Hari's book Lost Connections, which also has a lot to say about online versus real life. And I feel quite strongly that there is. Um, real-life conversations are the gold standard. So the most life-enriching interactions are the ones that we have with real people in the same place, at the same time, face-to-face. Then the second richest are the conversations we have, like this one over Skype, um, where we are can maybe see each other's faces. I mean, we we right now can't, but often you can see each other's faces and where we can talk to each other using our actual voices. Um, And then um, the kinds of conversations that we have online, the online interactions are, they're not nothing. And I do find that it's very helpful to try to think through ideas online. I often get good feedback it's good to formulate them but there are several problems with them one is that it's a kind of simulacra of real conversation that can be better than nothing um but can sometimes be worse than nothing it's a bit like um i'm going to give a a slightly couple of slightly far-fetched analogies but i think it might help um so I do I do keto, which I'm not 
one of the rules of key, the first rule of keto club is you must always talk about keto club. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go into it in huge detail, although I'm a little evangelical about keto. I feel it's it's made a lot of difference to my to my health. Um, but um, there there are many people who on keto you can't have sugar or honey or um, fruit or many other types of natural sweet things and there are some artificial sweeteners that you are permitted and some people just eat things with artificial sweeteners all day long but my sensation each time i've tried something with an artificial sweetener is it is it doesn't taste good in itself but it tastes just sweet enough to remind me of what I'm missing by not eating actual sweet things. And so it's worse than not having anything sweet at all. I feel like, to give my second far-fetched analogy, it's a bit like um, if you're lonely or heartbroken because you don't have a girlfriend, boyfriend or whatever and you wish you did, um, and then you watch a romantic movie um, where the guy gets the girl, do you feel better about your own romantic life afterwards or worse? <laughs> and online conversations can often bear the same sort of relationship to real face-to-face -face conversation that the romantic movie can do to real-life love affair. That's not to say that there's nothing in the romantic movie. So I'm watching Babylon 5 because I'm a complete fucking nerd. Um, and I'm totally... I am totally, totally um, empathize with um, Delane and Sheridan's relationship in that series. So it's it's not nothing. It's good to keep those feelings alive, but it's it's the relationship with it, it's very, very distant from the real thing. And the real thing is the gold standard is face to face, and. So that, that's one aspect, I think. And the other aspect is this frittering away of attention that what we need, Daniel Levitin also talks about this in his book, The Organized Mind. And um, The Organized Mind and Darren Brown's book, Happy, are the two books that I am really evangelical about. To anybody who suffers from anxiety or depression, I recommend those two books. I think you should reread them every few years. And um, Levitin talks about unifocus, unitasking, and unifocus. That what is important, the times that you can really do good work is when you are completely absorbed in an activity. And you may not be able to do very much of that work per day. Uh, in Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, he says four hours is the maximum. Uh, four hours within this state of actually deeply concentrating and working is is the, the maximum you can aim for. And most people can probably manage two or three. Um, and my old supervisor, John Mullen, also always used to say, he said five hours of billable time working or working makes it sound very dry or writing or dancing or whatever the activity is that you are passionate about and that is meaningful to you um, is if you're doing four, four, four to five hours of it that's a lot 
Um, so it's not that you can do this all day. Obviously, you need to take breaks. But what you what you can't do is just do the thing for 30 seconds and then look at Twitter and then do it for another 30 seconds. You can't let your attention be constantly prey to all kinds of different demands. And I think it's really, it's very tough on Twitter because if you are a, um, if you are a quite polite person, which I'd like to think that I can be, <laughs> I'm not always, but I can be, um, and people are asking you questions, it's very tempting to feel you owe them an answer. Because in real life, if you were sitting, when if you were sitting right here with me and we were having tea and you asked me a question, I wouldn't just ignore you. Yeah. Um, so we feel that we should answer the person in the same way we would answer in real life, and in the same way, if somebody attacks us, we feel we should defend ourselves. Just as in real life, if we we're having an argument and you said something that was totally unfair, I would say, "Hey, that's unfair." Um, but in fact, these aren't real life. Um, interactions, they're not going to give us the same level of satisfaction, but that also means we don't have the same level of obligation. And you need to just be wary of these time suck attention vampires and just learn to ignore. And I think that's one of the hardest, hardest lessons. And that has nothing to do with free speech. Free speech doesn't involve, doesn't mean you are entitled to a fraction of somebody else's one single lifetime on this earth yeah no and you know i agree with just like i agree with almost every word you said there except for one oh. thing and it's just I, I wanted to talk to you about this as well because we both love us uh we both share a love of star trek oh and, yes <laughs> and but then you brought up babylon 5 now granted i saw it when it first came out and i could not stand it so this is i guess going back to the, the late 90s, early 2000s, maybe even the mid 90s when it first came out. And I couldn't stand it, so maybe I should go back and rewatch it. But I also have a love of all things sci fi. Um, Me too. And I think I got that from my father. And I mean, I remember we moved to Canada in December of 75. So when Star Wars came out in 77, um, you know, it was this big thing. And so we went as a family. And then the following weekend, my dad came to my brother and I, because he knew my mom and my sister weren't really that into it. But he came to my brother and I, and he was the one who's like, do you guys want to go see Star Wars again? And my dad loved sci-fi as well. And I remember Sunday mornings, I would watch Star Trek with my dad. My brother and I would watch Star Trek with, with our dad. And then after Star Trek, we would get a, a feed from an American public broadcaster and they would play Doctor Who. And my dad and I would watch Doctor Who. So, you know, I grew up loving sci-fi, like I said, but Babylon 5, I just never got into, like, not in the least. Mm. Oh, gosh, I, I, I have fallen so in love with Babylon 5, even though I had a very um, difficult the beginning to our relationship. Anyway, I'm watching it on a website, and the um, episodes were out of order. So the very first episode I watched was actually an episode from the end of season four, which they had substituted for the first Babylon 5 episode. And the same thing happened with the episode at the beginning of season two, which is actually a crucial episode because it explains 
anybody listening, there's going to be now, there are going to be a few spoilers. So if you're watching Babylon 5, you should skip to, and maybe we can put in a timestamp later when we finish this discussion. <laughs> Just skip this little part. <laughs> um, because it, it, uh, I think it's the either the last episode of season one or first episode of season two explains the idea that the Minbari war ended because the Minbari discovered that um, Minbari souls were being reincarnated into human bodies. And um, instead, I had this episode uh, where um, uh, with a new telepath instead of the old one, which had come from the end of season four, and um, where they had also changed over the Vorlon ambassador. And it was completely confusing to me, as you can imagine. So because of that, I was just totally, I didn't understand why Delenn began the series with long, dark hair, and then she was bald, and then she had long, dark hair again. And, um, and why, you know, the Vorlon was a good guy, and then he was a bad guy. And, I had to go back and sort of rewatch, but once I finally figured out what, there were a couple of other episodes that were also mislabeled. But since I've managed to work that out and get back mm -hmm. on track, I have been absolutely loving it. And I'm just, I feel that, so Babylon 5 um, has this, it has this very intense, quite, heightened dialogue that is not naturalistic and it, um, it can be often quite aphoristic, quite philosophical, but I am more than willing to suspend my disbelief about that. I don't require di dialogue to be naturalistic and I rather like this rather Shakespearean feel of the dialogue. I feel as though it's dialogue trimmed down to how we would speak if we were all in a in a very beautifully written play. Um, so it has this theatrical quality to it rather than a TV quality. Um, that's the first thing that I feel. And I also um, um, I also absolutely am um, absolutely I I love the Minbari religion. The I the uh, Mimbari have this atheistic, in a sense, religion. There's no God in the Mimbari religion, but the universe itself is sentient. Um, but it can only express its sentient, sense, sentience through sentient beings, what in Star Trek we call humanoids, but here, but which is a little bit of a misnomer because they don't have to take this human shape, but only through sentience, as they're more appropriately, I think, called in Babylon 5. Um, and it is like um, shining a light on a wall, projecting a light onto a wall. We are the wall. And through us, you can see the light, but the light source is elsewhere. Um, and I absolutely love that. I love that image. I really enjoy the Minbari philosophy, and I feel that it's that philosophy is explained and fleshed out in a way that, for example, um, Bajoran philosophy on Deep Space Nine is not. The Bajorans are just kind of vaguely Buddhist-y, uh, who knows what, you know. Yeah. Uh, 
I watched Deep Space Nine. Um, I, I mean, I watched all the Star Trek up until Discovery, and I might give Discovery another try because I've heard the second season was really good. I didn't like the first. Um, I absolutely adore Discovery, and um, I'm willing to die on that hill. Um, so we can talk about that later. But, I mean, the, the D- Deep Space Nine, I found out of all the, you know, so going from the original series to Enterprise, Deep Space Nine was the one I liked the least. Um, I mean, I, I the the original series still for me it helped it, it it's it's very cheesy, and you know William Shatner chews up the screen when he acts. But I really, I love, I love William Shatner. I love that. You see, I love that kind of Shakespearean, Thespian-y acting and the morality play sort of feel of it. I mean, I, I love the original series, and then the Next Generation was really good. And that was another thing about the Next Generation was. Uh, uh, Patrick Stewart was a Shakespearean actor, and so he brought that, um, at least you know, with the way he spoke in the Next Generation. But uh, yeah, I actually I found I thought Enterprise was after Next Generation was probably my favorite series, and then Deep Space Nine That's was a choice. <laughs> and no, okay, I know a lot of people didn't like it, but I got into Enterprise. I was overseas, and we had nothing to do. I mean, there's. I was in the middle of Afghanistan. There's nothing to do on the bases. So we would get, you know, someone would come home. They would download a series. They would bring it back. So you had nothing else to do. So you watch stuff. And uh, I got into it. The second and third season I found were really well done. Uh, The first season about the second half I I really liked. And the last season I thought it was okay. but But the second and third season I thought were as good as any of the other treks. And I, I really liked it. It had its moments. I love the Andorian. Jeffrey Coombs is just a magnificent actor, always. Um, I really enjoyed the plots with Shran. Um, I couldn't deal with T'Pol, this kind of ultra-sexy Vulcan character. But Deep Space Nine was my favorite by far, and I think I've watched it five times, and I will probably rewatch. But I would like to just return to Babylon 5 for a second because it's very fresh in my mind. Sure. And I have a couple more things I'd like to say in defense of it. Sure. Um, So one thing about the, just returning to the Shakespearean quality of it, um, there is some really uh, beautiful classic acting in Deep, well, Deep Space Nine too, but in Babylon 5, and I am just completely in love with Andreas Katsoulis, or his performance, rather. I gather he was sort of a jerk in real life, <laughs> having read some fan, some various accounts. Um, but that, um, I, I'm a real sucker for heroism, and I was having a little bit of a kind of argument with um, Greg Lukianov, who is one of my favorite people on Twitter, and... Uh, you know, if my Twitter account is ever suspended, he is not that I interact with him that much, but whenever I interact with him, I feel what a lovely guy. <laughs> um, but we we're having a little bit of an argument because Greg felt that Babylon 5 is one, one kind of tough guy toughing it out and being courageous after another in every episode. And I think there might be something to that <laughs> that's a kind of machismo to Babylon 5. Um, and I think I actually am a real I'm a real sucker for that. And the the one of the 
the Jakar, Jakar's character in Babylon 5 is I am just I'm so um, moved by that character's portrayal of heroic masculinity um, I think I'll put it that way so um, I don't know to what extent um, Greg would disagree with would feel this is machismo, but I think that as a kind of ab absolutely masculine character, well, tradition with all the traditional masculine traits in this, utterly it's utterly heroic, um, and I I really like the fact that in Deep Space Nine um, you have the Bajorans and the Cardassians. And the equivalent on Babylon 5 is um, um, the equivalents on Babylon 5 are the Centauri and the Narn. But whereas on Deep Space Nine, the Cardassians are these reptilian, they are literally uh, reptilian, I think they have some reptile ancestry, these more reptilian looking creatures, and the Bajorans basically look completely human, apart from a few lines across the nose. Um, and the Bajorans are the good guys, the Cardassians, the bad guys, generalizing because um, Deep Space Nine is quite subtle in its treatment of, of species, or which is a kind of stand-in for race. It's quite subtle in its treatment of that, but um, as, a, as a basic kind of rule, the Cardassians are um, the Nazis and the Bajorans are the occupied, uh, the people on the occupied planet. And on Babylon 5, it's the other way around. The Narn are these quite frightening-looking... Um, they look a bit like leopards or jaguars, and they are much physically stronger, and they wear gloves because they have really, really sharp claws. And um, they have red eyes, and they look at first quite frightening and sinister, and the Centauri are base, basically look human. They they aren't as human as they look. They have six penises, for example. Um, the males have six penises, we, we learn later in the series. But basically, outwardly, dr when they're dressed, they look human apart from these weird hairstyles, they, bad hairstyles they have. It's kind of, um, you know, a cross between Amy Winehouse and something out of Black Adder. Um, but the Centauri are the um, are the fascists. There's kind of decadent fascist race that have Nazi elements and also elements that remind me of the Harkonnens in June. Um, this it's kind of late Roman Empire decadence, um, and it's it's the Narns who are the victims. And it's Jakar who is a Narn who is, for me, the most heroic character and the most, just the most engaging character. And I could watch Babylon 5 just for Andreas Katsoulis' acting alone. He is in this, uh, he's wearing an, a, an enormous amount of prosthetics. He has this thick rubber mask on, painted, and he's got, and he has, um, contact lenses covering his eyes and um, and nevertheless his ability to emote through all of those prosthetics is just extraordinary. I can almost, when he is suffering or in pain, I can almost not watch. I can almost not watch his 
his facial expression in pain and suffering. It's it's too painful to me. Um, and the other thing, <laughs> before I finish this long, long spiel about Babylon 5, which is probably boring all your listeners, but we should timestamp this whole sci-fi section so those who are not into this can just skip it. I'll put, um, it, I'll put that in the description. Yeah, let's timestamp this section so only nerds, they can just be among us nerds. Um, but the other thing in Babylon 5 is um, that the plot, the way it's plotted, there there are not too many Deus Ex Machina style scenes. There are not too many last minute saves um, or kind of characters are, um, the characters in Babylon 5 are very much not victims of their, of their fates. But in Babylon 5, they're always, the writing gives the characters so many chances, so many choices. There are so many moments of decision where the character is faced with two choices and he can take the route towards good or he can take the route towards evil. And even if he takes a route towards evil, there's going to be another bifurcation later. You know, there are many second chances. There are many ways to redeem yourself. Um, but at the same time, every decision you take has consequences. And I love that. I absolutely love that style of writing. And so far, I gather this changes later in the series, and I haven't seen it yet. So, But... Um, Londo Malari, who is the main villain, I would say, of the series, um, the Centauri ambassador in Babylon 5, you see his kind of gradual slide into evil. And it's really, it really represents the banality of evil, how easy it is to get seduced little by little. Um, and and this, you see the same thing with Jakar, who could you see him being tempted towards bad choices in so many moments. There are so many moments when he could have gone towards the, the dark side. But every time it's his own choice is bringing him towards greater kind of enlightenment. And yeah, I, I love that about the writing. I love the fact that characters have choices and those choices have consequences and um the writing never shies away from the consequences. They they plot. People are plotting to kill the president. The president is killed. They want to take out Jakar's eye. Jakar's eye is taken out. Was, that was the most horrible, worst scene in the entire thing for me so far. And I could almost we didn't even see it, and I still had nightmares. But um, you know, so the writer has writers have the courage of their convictions. But at the same time, the characters are not just buffeted by things at random. They are choosing, and I, I really like that. <laughs> Sorry, so that's my long spiel. Right? No, long it's, okay. Like I said, I'd watched it when it had first come out, and I just couldn't get into it. Maybe there was just you know, too much other stuff going on. Um, but I've got a... I'm actually at home right now on an extended leave, so I've got nothing but time. So maybe I'll, I'll give it another try again after that passionate, uh, you know, appeal uh, for or the, the 
I shouldn't say appeal, but the, the passionate description about Babylon 5, maybe I'll give it another try because I saw you tweeting about it and I just had to bug you a little bit about it because I, I honestly, like I said, when I first watched it, I couldn't stand it. Oh, sure. I mean, I do I do like almost all sci-fi. Um, I can watch even pretty bad sci-fi and enjoy it. I'm more fussy about what I read, but I can, I can enjoy watching almost any sci-fi. I even enjoy Star Wars. Um, although I think Star Wars is more like space opera, it's missing that side part of the sci-fi. Um, but I can even enjoy that. Sorry, go ahead. Go no, on. I mean Star Wars. I I liked the first three movies, and maybe it was because you know, like I said, Star Wars came out in '77. I was um, eight. So, you know, so I. But any of the prequels and then these sequels now, I. I they're awful. I think they're they're horrible. Oh well, I I find them. I enjoy them. You know, I enjoy those lush scenes of the different planets. I like that that kind of. I just in in enjoy that ambiance. Um, but I'm I'm not a I'm not a huge fan. Um, I don't I don't really like this operatic heroic thing going on. Um, I want to feel more like get a more lived in sense of the of of the future places but yeah for me my my favorites are star trek battlestar galactica which i absolutely adore um asimov's novels and my favorite sci-fi of all um is um ursula le guin's completely perfect little novel the left hand of darkness yeah which I, I love that book. That and um, is it the, the Lathe of Heaven? Uh, probably. Is that the... Well, you know, I enjoy her other works, especially mm -hmm. I think Dispossessed, um, and the Word for World is Forest. So I've read most of her other writing. I've read it with enjoyment, but never with a kind of passion that I feel about that specific book. And in fact, for a long time, I didn't read any of her other work because I was afraid it would disappoint me after that book. That's also the reason why I haven't read any other John Irving. I mean, this is really unfair on the author in a sense. <laughs> I wrote a prayer for Owen Meany, and it, I find that book so intensely moving that I was just like, right, I'm never reading any other Irving because there's no way he can top that, and I don't want to be disappointed. My expectations of him are so sky high now. I, um, <laughs> I, I'm actually the opposite. If I read something by someone that I uh, that I really like... I'm going to try to find everything because everything that they've written, um, like Ursula, uh, Ursula uh, the Green. I mean, I, I was into fantasy far more than I was into science fiction when I was younger. Um, I got more into science fiction as I got older, except for, like I said, Star Trek. I always liked Star Trek. Um, so I read her, um, the wizard of Earthsea series. Yes, me and, too. And then I, I that. that was the first thing I read and I really liked that. I enjoyed it. And that from there, I went on to read other stuff. And I'm the same thing, like I said, if I find, especially in a genre like fantasy or science fiction, um, and there's one uh, one guy who was Clive Barker. I was in India in the late 80s, and I was there for the whole summer, and was, I was looking for something to read, and I walked into a bookstore, and I picked up one of his books, and I'd never heard of him. Uh, I had no idea who he was, and I read that book, and I loved it, and after that, I went and got everything he wrote that I could get my hands on. 
Well, you know, with Ursula Le Guin, I feel like if she had only written The Left Hand of Darkness and nothing else, she would still be, a, a, you know, a, one of the truly great writers. That novel is just, it's a perfect little jewel. It's just, um, you know, it's that story could only have happened to those characters. Um, that, uh, that, the set it could only have happened in that setting um and it could only have happened with with those premises the um the premises of the the um um the androgynous race um and it's just you know there is it ranges so widely across topics it talks about um, so we have sexuality, we have different governmental systems, monarchy and communism and space travel and love. And, and yet it's, it's so um, economical. There is not a single superfluous word in that book. And it's really, it's, it's almost quite intimidating that level, the level of skill and inspiration that went into that world and the it's a, has this kind of thomas hardy-esque tragedy to it that um um estrogen achieves everything gets everything that he wants but always too late <laughs> it's just you know that um which which is exactly how hardy novels also also work except that in hardy novels we know in advance that that the characters are going to arrive too late or receive thing too late um that's how hardy novels works he likes to get mm. likes to have the reader in on it so you're watching you have dramatic irony and dramatic irony is basically dramatic irony is when for example you see the woman going going blithely into her flat um, and you know the killer is hiding behind the door with a knife that's that's dramatic irony when you the watcher or reader know something the character don't doesn't know and you're you're kind of screaming at them no no don't do it <laughs> um, and it doesn't it doesn't have that dramatic irony which I'm really happy about but it has that ironic sort of mistiming at one point Estrovan says why can I never set my heart on a possible thing? And I'm just, oh. <laughs> um, I mean, there are so many beautiful, beautiful um, aphoristic quotations in that book, but that's the one that really gets to me every time. Okay. Um, I just want to talk about a couple other things because I mean, I've taken up quite a bit of your time and thank you very much. Uh, your podcast, the, uh, the Two for Tea podcast, uh, you also do that with <laughs> Helen... Here ends the science fiction section. Yep, here so ends the science fiction. We're, we're... for the non-nerds <laughs> to read the conversation. Okay, but, you know, again, I, like I said, I, I knew nothing of Tango. I appreciated your book because of your passion for it. And I think the way you passionately talked about Babylon 5, I think someone could appreciate that. But, you know, I'll give people fair warning if they don't want to listen to it, they don't have to. But your, your podcast... Um, did you start that as an accompaniment 
to Aereo or were you wanting to do that on its own and it just kind of sort of fell in like that or how did that come about? Um, no, what happened with the podcast is that it was planned as an accompaniment to Aereo and um, the idea was that Helen and I together were going to do the podcast mm-hmm. and if you go back to the first episode of the podcast, the first episode of the podcast is Helen and I talking at some length about our own ideas and views and um, we wanted to interview different people each week um, but our idea was that we would we would host the podcast together and um, then quite shortly after that, first of all the whole Sopo hoax stuff exploded um, so Helen was hugely in demand, and then Helen was commissioned to write her book. Um, so, as ever, as I think, I hope you, many people know, Helen is writing a book about critical theory and uh, its origins in postmodernism and how it has um, adapted and changed postmodernist views. Um, what the main ideas are and how people activists have used those and I think she is the one of the few people the only person I know who is incredibly knowledgeable about theory and a complete skeptic about it so um, she is going to give you a well-informed skeptics view of theory Um, anyway a little digression about plugging Helen's forthcoming book which I'm editing um, so I, I get to have a sneak preview. Um, the, um, so we, we decided to begin it together, but then Helen was too busy to be able to commit to a regular podcasting. So at first we were podcasting quite irregularly whenever Helen was able to, and then I decided it would be better to just podcast every week and just interview people on my own if Helen was not available. And so Helen basically gave the running of the podcast over to me. Um, So I choose the guests and um, I prepare the questions. And if Helen is free and interested, she comes and joins us. But I'm the one who makes sure that I've read the person's book or articles and that I have my questions prepared. And I'm the one who chooses the guests and topics. And I think I have become better at podcasting um, over the course of the podcast. It began in August of last year. So I guess the podcast has been going for for six to about seven months. Um, I've been doing it and I've never done any. I've, I've been interviewed on a few podcasts myself, but I've never done any interviewing. And in the first few podcasts, I'm umming and aahing an awful lot, but I become a bit more fluent as I go along. And at the at first, it wasn't very regular because I was trying to fit it around Helen's schedule, but now it comes out almost every Sunday. Occasionally, I've missed a Sunday because of force majeure, but uh, almost every Sunday it comes out. And um, it's been enormously enjoyable. I have had some really wonderful guests. And, uh, no, sorry, I, I'm just going to interrupt yeah. for one second. And if for anyone listening, if you haven't heard that podcast, it's thoroughly enjoyable. I might miss it one week, but I always catch up. 
Um, you know, yes, I, please, please link to it in the show notes. Uh, and uh, I, also, I also talk about tango and my book in a lot more detail in um, the most recent episode. Um, the most recent episode, I did one on the culture of Argentine tango, so that's up there. Okay. And I talk mostly, um, I've talked about politics a lot on the podcast, um, but I also, if somebody has recently published a book which I think is interesting, then I will often have them on the podcast. Um, so I think some of the highlights for me were the second issue when, when Helen and I talked to Sarah Hader, mm-hmm. and we about um, ex-Muslims, about leaving Islam, about atheism, and about the notion of community, and also about online discourse. Um, Sarah is just a luminous intellect. And I also really loved, it's sort of hard to choose, um, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff came on to talk about the coddling of the American mind. That was definitely one of the highlights for me. I also really, really loved talking to Will Storr, um, who wrote Selfie, and we talked about the cult of self-esteem. Um, we talked about depression, anxiety, insecurity, self-esteem, and how those things are connected. Um, and another very sort of two other, I think, very highlight highlight e ones for me were. Um, talking to were talking about circumcision which you wouldn't think you could talk for an hour and a half on that topic but you most certainly can um so i'm going to title i haven't changed the titles of all the episodes yet but i'm creating i'm in the process of creating a new website for it and i'm going to put more interesting titles and that one is going to be called in defense of the foreskin (laughs) with brian david earp um i had on uh unexpected fun on talking about that. Um, I hope as Muslim this is not kind of too personal to you. Oh, I know, um, but okay, I mean like, uh, sorry, I, I, I've, I've heard Brian Earp speak on another podcast and I heard him speak on yours, but it's just I, 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 I'm not trying to be, it's just funny to hear someone say like, I had fun talking about circumcision because it's because it's, <laughs> I mean, okay, there is, you know, Obviously, there's some puns that you can have in there as well. Yes. It was kind of, I mean, I guess it's not so funny, haha, but it was really nice to take a deep dive into a very specific small topic. I love doing that kind of thing. And I also really love talking to um, Thomas Chatterton Williams uh, about mixed race identities, which I am um, planning to write a book about, or I've started writing a new book about that. Uh, my book is called The Half Cast is its working title. So that was a topic very dear to my heart. Those are some of my favorites. Um, I mean, uh, you know, again, that's one of the reasons I, that's one of the things I really enjoy about Twitter. Um, I, you know, if it wasn't for Twitter, I wouldn't have gotten to, you know, know about your work and then know about that podcast. And, Oh, you do you do have an eclectic set of guests on um you know it's it's you know like the same thing with like the the joe rogan i mean he has he puts out so much though and he has so mm. many different people on it's like okay he puts on five puts out five a week i might only watch two but 
am I really going to complain? The guy's putting out, you know, 15 hours of, you know, stuff a week pretty much. And I watched six of it or something. And so I, you know, like I said, those are the th- certain, some of the things, because I've gotten fed up with television. I've gotten fed up with, you know, most things on television. There's not a lot out there. And uh, I love finding this stuff on the internet now. There, There's, I mean, you can find yourself a niche or you can find yourself something like what you're doing where you're talking to different people over a wide range of subjects and, you know, keep people engaged, right? Yeah. I think always the problem is money. Yeah. Um, You know, the podcast is a a lot of work and it's my um, dream that I could either have enough patrons or um, have enough listeners that I could monetize it Mm-hmm. Um, I think from 25,000 on is when you can monetize. So I'm a really long way off that now. There's uh, probably about 4,000 listeners. I think on YouTube, it's once you reach 1,000 subscribers and you've got so many hours of people listening to your stuff, then it's monetize. you can monetize it. Um, um, yeah, podcasts may be more because the monetizing is through advertising. Um, I'm not sure that's the figure that was recently quoted to me. Okay. I- um so I, I, you know, it's my, it's, um, it's my dream to be able to make enough money on the podcast that I could devote significant time to it. At the moment, I am, you know, my income is so low that I am thinking of going back to India um, because I really want to write my book. So um, I want to be able to continue living from just editing, doing ARIO, doing the podcast. I say just, but this is, it's really a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Doing a full-time job, but I'm not earning a normal salary or salary high enough for the first world or even for Argentina. Um, and I don't want to give that up and get an office job because I really do want to produce more writing. I feel that I have an important voice and I want to put that voice out into the world. So always money is the limiting factor. Um, and uh, if it weren't, I would happily, I would happily podcast every day. <laughs> I would love that. But it's when I, when I do an episode of Opa, um, my preparation is that I, um, I, use, I often have guests on who've recently published a book. I read the book. Um, sometimes I review the book for Aria, which it takes me a few days to write a review. Um, I read whatever articles they have published, and then the actual podcasting itself, the hour or so of podcasting itself, is the least of the amount of time invested. It's all very, very enjoyable time, though. And I do also have a sound engine, a volunteer sound engineer, so that is incredible. It would be impossible without him. And I... Um, without my sound engineer Justin Ward who I'm going to blow a kiss to he's not listening to this I don't think he has time but um, maybe I'll time maybe I'll try and timestamp this bit where I blow him a kiss later and send it to him he is the babeliest babe in all of Canada and he is my favorite man Mm -hmm. anyway no I mean I understand like I right now I'm um, I said mentioned I'm on an extended leave so I've a lot of time, but I do this all myself, to, you know, so I was going to ask you that, like, how do you, so I'll, when I edit it myself and I'm trying to figure it out as I go along, but then I have to listen to myself speak and 
I just, I hate that. I hate listening to myself talk. Well, I listen to it through because I put timestamps in yeah. um, and show notes um, and links to anything that anybody's mentioned during the mm-hmm. conversation. Um, and also I give it a kind of check through. Um, I don't mind listening to my own voice at all. Um yeah, but I, you have a lovely brogue, and I've kind of a kind of monotone, gravelly thing going on. Really, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I think that I have many problems with my voice, and I used to do theater, and I gave up because um, my speaking voice is really sits in a bad place. So I, my voice is high pitched, and it's quite soft, and I can't project well so when I try to project I'm shouting and I get a sore throat when I was an academic I I had my own portable microphone I would carry my microphone around for lectures and even sometimes at seminars I would use a microphone because students couldn't hear me and um, I took singing lessons in an attempt to help and I can actually I can produce I'm not a very I'm not very musical, but I can produce a good sound when I'm singing, but I could still not manage to do that speaking. So, and I've had so many criticisms of my voice. Lots of people hate my voice. And um, I had a lot of kind of comments. I think one of the first podcasts that I did at all as a guest was I went on Benjamin Boyce's podcast. It's called The Voice of Reason. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I actually Um, saw that one. And uh, apparently a lot of people complained to Benjamin that they couldn't listen to that. They couldn't watch that episode or listen to it because my, no offense to me, but my voice was so incredibly annoying. Who could listen to such an annoying voice? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no offense uh, intended <laughs> no, I, uh, okay that's maybe it's just me though but like I said I, I find you have a you know, you know, I, I like the Scottish brogue and I, I, I think you have you have a lovely you know, like I said I, if, if I could I would I would hire you to narrate my uh, my life I would I would, <laughs> I would I would love that I love reading aloud and um I would really love to do my own audio book, and I love reading poetry and things. As I said, I used to do theater, and I really enjoyed theater, but I cannot project. I just, I cannot make my voice loud without straining and damaging my vocal cords and getting a sore throat. I can either speak quietly or I can shout. I just can't, I can't do the booming thing. And my voice is naturally really high. When I was singing, I sang in the coloratura soprano range, so I could hit some very high notes, um, not with a particularly pleasant sound, or you know, um, I'm not. I, I can't. I can't sing very well in the sense of doing a good performance, but I can impress you by opening my mouth and bringing out a top F or G, you know, um, kind of Queen of the Night style thing, because I do just have a really very high natural voice um but for speaking it that's a big disadvantage well on that note i'm going to let you go because like i said thank you very much you've been very generous with your time i i just wanted to ask you do you have 
because I'll put any of your links to your social media for Aereo, for your podcast. If there's anything else uh, you want to, you know, where people can find you, any last words or anything you are coming up that you want to discuss, please go uh, ahead. Well, I, I would love people to go and check out my book and there are some reviews on Amazon. Um, and maybe you could put a link in the show notes. Oh, for sure. Uh, Americans need to buy the book on Amazon. Uh, everybody else, um, I would love it if you would buy directly from my publisher. It's a small independent publisher. I'm not making any money on this book. Um, and uh, the publisher is not even breaking even yet. So if you send me, if you send me that, I will definitely include the the link to that in uh, in the show notes. That's great, and I'll give you my a link to my area writings and mm -hmm. also to the podcast feed. And I have a general website, so I'll include that as well if anyone is interested. Sure. And again, thank you very much. Thank you everyone for listening, and I will be back.